bottom line is that truth exists. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be at Fort Lewis College, right? You believe there's something to learn here. You're paying your money to learn it. So you obviously believe that some truth exists. You're going to hear throughout your time at this college that no such thing exists. And that argument assumes it's antithesis or <laughs> in uh, plain English, it's kind of funny. Like you guys all laughed when you heard it. This guy said, do you believe that there's any truth in this world? And he said, no way, not at all. I said, you believe that's true? Absolutely. So <laughs> there's a contradiction when you try to argue that truth does not exist. You're, you believe that you're true in saying that, right? That's why I think it was Plato said, all I have to do to prove that to you is for you to open your mouth. Because the minute you start talking, you already believe that you're saying truthful things. So anyway, truth does exist. And if you try to deny that, you're in uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, we're going to talk about what I believe is a very truthful philosophy. Any philosophy that we ever study has to be logically consistent. It's not supposed to contradict itself. It's supposed to be empirically adequate, which just means that it, it's, it's real, right? If we look at the universe around us, it corresponds. It's, uh, it's totally based in reality, and it's supposed to be experientially relevant. So it's relevant to you in your daily life. You can do it. It's not some out-of-the-world type of thing. And more than that, all those answers that the philosophy provides should be, uh, they should all correspond to reality, like we said, and they all need to be coherent, right? They can't differ or they can't contradict each other. For example, they have to answer the questions of origin, how you came to exist on this planet, meaning what you're here for, morality, what's right and wrong, and destiny, where are you going? And if the answers that a philosophy provides to any one of those questions differ or contradict each other, then it's probably not a very good philosophy, right? And I believe that Christianity and Jesus' answers in specific are the most coherent that any person has ever offered on this planet. I think after I'm done tonight, uh, you'll be able to come to your own conclusions. Jesus himself said that he was the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Okay, and that there is no other salvation except through him. That's a pretty amazing statement. So if he was right, we'd better evaluate that claim and, uh, and see what comes next. So the main alternative that you're going to hear on this campus is the theory of evolution, right? You guys are going to hear this in your science classes. You're going to hear this in your non-science classes. You're going to hear it all over the campus. The theory of evolution, I don't believe, holds any water. And I took a bunch of years of college science classes here at Fort Lewis, and I'm going to tell you some of the reasons that I don't think it quite works. First of all, it's not even a science. Every science has to be testable by the scientific method, where you form a hypothesis, you go in your lab, you do all your testing and experimentation, and you find out whether or not your hypothesis was valid. Well, evolution, it escapes that entire process. It says, well, here's our big gigantic theory, but it takes 48 million years for any of it to happen, so we can't test it. Well, if you can't test it, it's not science. That's why scientists have the scientific method. So right from the start, it's not a science. It's a worldview. It's a worldview that people choose to believe, a way of thinking, a way of believing that people choose to believe. And I believe it's a worldview with very negative connotations, right? Going back to those questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, what does evolution provide? What's your origin? Chance, accident. You have no reason to be here. It's just an accident. What's your meaning in this life? None. You're an accident. Why should you have any meaning? Hope you do well, right? What about morality? Well, do whatever you want to anyone, murder hundreds, thousands, millions, because there is no morality. You're just an accident. And if they're just an accident, why not kill them, right? So that's kind of the morality that evolution gives us. What about destiny? You're going to die and rot away, and that's the end of the story. So I think it's a worldview with a very poor 
poor uh, description of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And I think you can judge for yourself whether you want to believe that worldview. It contradicts the first law of thermodynamics, which is a huge thing, that says that matter cannot be created or destroyed, right? If matter cannot be created by a naturalistic method, then how did we all get to be here, right? Even Einstein figured out, maybe merely 50 or 60 years ago, that the universe is expanding. And if it's expanding, it had to have a starting point. The minute Einstein proved that mathematically, he turned from an atheist to maybe not an agnostic. He believed in God. He was never a Christian, I don't believe. But just the evidence that the universe had a starting point convinced him that a God had to exist. So, supposing that the universe had a starting point, matter at some point was created, and if that's the case, there had to be a non-naturalistic source, something that we can't explain by natural laws, which I believe is God. Okay? Evolution does not have a mechanism, which is just a way that it happens. Every theory has to have a way that it happens or a mechanism. Natural selection has been proposed, but natural selection never works to increase the amount of genes out there uh, or the amount of uh, genetic diversity. It only decreases it, narrows it down. Okay? Positive mutations, which is supposed to be what natural selection works on, uh, that are transferable to the offspring have never been found. After decades, after maybe a hundred years even, of bombarding fruit flies with every single type of substance and radiation known to man, we haven't come up with anything yet. It just doesn't happen and it's just not science. Stephen Jay Gould, one of the most prominent evolutionists of our lifetimes, said the theory of evolution by gradual mutation is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. And he came up with his own radical theory uh, that was totally just out of sight. And he admitted that that had no mechanism either. He uh, just died about a year or two ago, by the way. So, evolution defies statistics. If you think about the simplest possible imaginable theoretical organism, it would require 100,000 nucleotide base pairs in its DNA just to kind of code the information necessary for life's most basic functions and 10,000 corresponding amino acids. All those have to be in what scientists would call chiral or enantiomeric purity, which means compounds have right and left-handedness. Just like your right hand won't fit in a left glove, so a right-handed, quote-unquote, compound wouldn't fit in a left-handed, quote-unquote, uh, glove. So there's this problem with chirality. And whenever you create a compound in nature, you're going to create what scientists call a racemic mixture, or it's a mixture of both handedness of the molecule. So if you make all these nucleotides and all these amino acids, you're going to have the right and left handed ones just all together in that mix. Now the problem is in DNA, you have to have all those lining just right handed, right handed, right handed, right handed, no left handed in the mix the probability of 100,000 nucleotide base pairs aligning in enantiomeric purity and 10,000 amino acids doing the same is 1 in 10 to the 33,113th power. Statistically, it's impossible. Something is statistically impossible if it's 1 in 10 to the 45th power. This is almost 1 in 10 to the 45,000th power. This is such a big problem for evolution that there is a world conference called the World Conference on the Origin of Homochirality in Life. They admit that without an answer to this problem, evolution is dead in the water, and they so far have come up with nothing. For some peculiar reason, though, you'll never read this in any prominent evolutionary text. Okay, 
The probability of the natural origin of the simplest theoretical prokaryote, so just all the DNA stuff and then everything else that needs to happen, has been calculated at 1 in 10 to the 112,827th power. It's pretty improbable. That's just to get your first cell. And then from there, you have to have everything else happen. So I don't think it really holds water. Anyway, it's so faulty that it's been dismissed by many prominent scientists. One of the main scientists of the entire 20th century, Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the three-dimensional structure of DNA, uh, came up with his theory because he said evolution would never be able to happen on this planet. And his theory is that aliens shot a life missile to this planet and started life that way. Okay? But he still has the gall to say that believing an intelligent creator did it is ludicrous. So I believe that this universe is full of intricate design. And whenever you see design, you believe that there was a designer behind it. When you look at that speaker, you know it's, there's a lot of design there, a lot of wires and everything. There is somebody that made that. So design always implies a designer. Here's an example of design. All of you are adults in here. Uh, every adult human body, on average, synthesizes 150 times 10 to the 18th amino acids every single second in complete perfect accuracy. That's a lot of design that doesn't just happen out of nothing. There's this anthropic principle in science that basically asserts that life on or that this planet is specifically suited to life and there are over 150 uh, different characteristics of this planet that are necessary in perfect accuracy to make life possible here. One is water. We think of water as no big deal. In fact, right here I have ice and water together, and the ice is floating on my drink here, right? Ice is the solid version of water, and ice floats. It's less dense as a solid than it is as a liquid. Most solids are more dense than their liquid form. Okay, now the fact that happens because the hydrogen and oxygens, they have hydrogen bonding between each other, and they kind of spread each other out. And because of that one characteristic of water, ice floats and it insulates the water below it instead of sinking and freezing up. If ice was denser than water, liquid water, uh, this planet would be an ice cube in a matter of years. Okay? Just that one principle that ice is less dense than water makes life on this earth possible. It's pretty amazing. There are tons of those things. So reasons to believe in the Bible. It is logically consistent and corresponds with reality. It's scientifically accurate. Second Peter 3.10 talks about radioactive decay. It says that the elements will decompose with a fervent release of energy. You could pull that definition for nuclear fission out of a textbook, and it was written 2,000 years ago. Scientists for 2,000 years, or for 1900, said that it would be impossible that the Bible was false because it talked about elements decomposing, and that just doesn't happen, they would say. Well, 105 or 6 years ago, we found out it does happen. Uh, the Bible talks about hydrologic circles, or cycles, I should say, of condensation and evaporation. It talks about that in Psalms 135 and Ecclesiastes 1 and in Job 36. In Ecclesiastes 1, it talks about atmospheric jet streams. In Job 26 and 37, it talks again about clouds and condensation. Isaiah 40:22 tells us that the earth is spherical. So for 1,500 years when you know, science was saying that the earth was flat, the Bible says, no, it's spherical. Isn't that amazing? The Bible nailed it, and how in the world would they ever know it was spherical in the first place? The Bible talks about the expansion of the universe. Job 26, 7 says that the earth is expanding, okay, or that the universe is expanding. Einstein didn't figure that out until 50 years ago. That's amazing. It says that the earth's foundation is hung on nothing in Job 26. Job 28 says that the air has weight. 
How in the world would an ancient writer figure out that air has weight? But it does. That's a scientific fact, and uh, the Bible talked about it. It talks about hydrothermic or freshwater vents in the ocean. How in the world could they know that, swimming down and tasting it? I don't think it would happen. But it talks about that in Genesis and Job again. The Bible tells us in Genesis four times that like begets like. That's a biological law that you can read in any of your biology textbooks that you come across here. And in Matthew 24 and Revelation 11, the Bible tells us that one event will be seen around the world. Okay, now how does that happen? Physically, that's impossible. But the writers wrote this prophetically in a way that has now been fulfilled. So it's both a fulfilled prophecy and a scientific reality because it was made possible through modern science. And that's, that's what they were talking about right there, that TV. Okay, the TV makes one event able to be seen across this planet. It's pretty amazing stuff. Could you imagine being that writer going, I don't know if I want to write that down. One event seen across the world? Sounds crazy. But they wrote it down as the Holy Spirit inspired their writing into God's word, and it was true. And it came true uh, just recently. So the Bible is prophetically accurate. Jesus alone fulfilled over 300 prophecies. The chances of that happening for just eight is one in 10 to the 17th power. Not very likely for just eight, and he did 300. Jesus' crucifixion was, pro- was prophesied 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented in Psalms 22. Okay, Alexander the Great was prophesied in Daniel 8 in such detail. It said that he's going to come from the West, he's going to dominate pretty much everything, that he's going to die at an early age, that his empire is going to be split, and that those, that empire will be combined back into a couple, which were the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid, okay, a couple of his generals that took over the empire and split it. Anyway, the Bible prophesied that in such amazing detail that critics said it was post-written history until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which go back to that same time period. Okay, Now critics are dead in the water. They don't have a clue how to explain how Daniel prophesied in such detail the entire rise and fall of Alexander the Great. The rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple was prophesied in Isaiah 44.28. Uh, and it was prophesied that a guy named Cyrus would rebuild Jerusalem and its temple 100 years before Jerusalem or its temple were destroyed and 100 years before Cyrus was even born. Okay? Unbelievable. And they named him by name. Tyre's destruction is prophesied in amazing detail that it would be made bare as a rock, that it would be a place where fishermen dry their nets, that the rubble would be thrown into the sea, and that it would never be rebuilt, all of which have occurred in just amazing detail. So it's prophetically accurate. It's historically accurate. It talks about real people, real places, real events corroborated by history and archaeology. Okay, two examples. The Hittites. Critics for thousands of, or for hundreds of years said the Hittite culture has never been found. The Bible is a falsity. These people never existed. But to date, we have all the evidence for the Hittites that you could ever even imagine. We have their entire language. We have multiple cities of Hittite uh, that, where the Hittites lived. So that has been found to be true. Caesar Augustus's census at the time of Christ's birth is talked about in Luke 2.1. And again, we have tremendous archaeological evidence for it. So just two things. The Bible is full of mathematical and prophetic codes. These will blow your mind. Okay, here's an example, Genesis 1.1. These are just a few. I don't even list all the multiples of seven in this one passage. It'll blow your mind. There are seven words. All these numbers are multiples of seven. With 28 letters, a multiple of seven, the numerical equivalent of the nouns in the verse adds up to 777. The numerical value of the only verb is 203, a multiple of seven. 
The first three words contain the subject and have 14 letters, a multiple of seven. The other four words are the object and have 14 letters, another multiple of seven. The words for the two objects each have seven letters. Okay, now I ended that because I couldn't go on forever, but that one verse with seven words has 30 multiples of seven in it. Okay, the chances of that happening are one in, uh, one in 33 trillion. It's amazing. And that's not just in Genesis 1.1. Okay, that's all through the Bible. Let's go to the very first passage in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 through 11. And again, I'm just leaving most of them out, just a few. It has 49 words, a multiple of seven, 266 letters, a multiple of seven, 140 vowels, a multiple of seven, 126 consonants, a multiple of seven. 40, of the 49 words, 28 are a multiple of seven, begin with a vowel, 21 begin with a consonant, seven end with a vowel, 42 end with a consonant, 14 occur only once, 35 occur more than once, 42 are nouns, seven are not, and it goes on and on and on and on. Okay, again, that's in the New Testament. Now, if you think that there's just a few different verses like this, listen to this. In 1882, Ivan Panin, a Harvard mathematician, provided 43,000 pages of those same mathematical codes to the Nobel Foundation as his evidence that the Bible was the word of God. You know what their reply was? And here's a quote. As far as our investigation has proceeded, we find the evidence overwhelmingly in favor of such a statement. Pretty amazing stuff, right? Okay, here's another code. The first 50th, 100th, and 150th letters in both Genesis and Exodus, the first two books of the Bible, spell out Torah, the Hebrew word for, for, God, for the Bible, right? And so T-O-R-A at 50-letter intervals. You go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus, you don't see anything at 50-letter intervals. Okay, so you go to the next book, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Both those books at 50-letter intervals spell Torah backwards, Arot in both of them. Okay, so you look at the first two and they're spelling forward. You look at the second two, they're going backward. So you go back to Leviticus and look at what they're supposedly pointing to in the middle. You look at the middle book of Leviticus and at seven letter intervals, God's name Yahweh is spelled out. Anyway, the Bible's authors agree. The Bible was written on three continents in three different languages, okay, over a 1500 year period by 40 different generations, by 40 different authors of different backgrounds, social status, language, and ethnicities. Okay? So talk about diversity. It's amazingly present in God's Word, in the Bible. Right? But yet they agree completely on every single subject. Take 40 of us in this room, you won't get us to agree. And we come from the same city, same, mostly same social background, mostly similar economic backgrounds. Right? It's amazing that all these authors agree. The Bible is textually authentic. A lot of people will say, well, what's, what we have now isn't what was originally written. That's baloney, okay? We have copies of the New Testament or portions of it that date back to A.D. 125 that were found as far away as Egypt, 25 to 70 years after it was written. So that period is within the lifetimes of people that lived when it was first written. And we already had copies as far away as Egypt, now, the earliest copy of the, the next best textually authentic document is Homer's Iliad, and the earliest copies we have of that are from 400 B.C., 500 years after it was written. So we have copies of the New Testament from 25 years after parts of it were written, the book of John, for example. Now, what about volume of copies? How do we know we, we didn't just get one false copy? Well, we have 24,000 early copies of the New Testament early copies of parts of the New Testament, 24,000. Going again to Homer's Iliad, 643 copies. 
what we, we have such a huge body of evidence that what we have today is what was originally written. And no scholar will even debate that in an intellectual form. The Bible has the power to change human beings. Look around this room. I've been changed by what it says. And a bunch of you guys have too. right? Look at Jesus' disciples and all the early starters of the church. Almost every single one of them went on to die horrible, horrendous deaths. People often die for their beliefs. Tomorrow we remember 9-11. Right? People died that day for their beliefs. But people very rarely die for a known lie. Okay? Now Jesus' disciples, if they are fabricating this, they would not have all, almost all, gone on to face horrendous deaths. They knew what they were dying for, and they were willing to die for it because they knew it was true. Simon Greeley, famed professor of Harvard Law School, said, quote, You may choose at the end of your investigative processes of the New Testament to say, I choose not to believe it, but you may not reserve the right to say because there is not enough evidence to believe it. The Bible points to one person and one event, Jesus and salvation. Jesus alone accurately described the human condition. He said, we are bad. Uh, He said that you can't be good on your own. Every religion you look at says what? You try to be good on your own, and if you're good enough, you get into heaven. You know what Jesus said? He said, you cannot be good enough on your own. You have to accept my free gift of salvation. So his description of our condition was diametrically opposed to anybody else that's ever presented one. Malcolm Muggeridge said, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. And that's true. We don't like thinking we're bad. But last century, more people were killed than in all others combined. We're not getting any better, no matter what we think, right? And so Jesus' description of man hit the nail on the head, that you can't be good on your own. Jesus' condition of salvation hit the nail on the head, We talked about ones that were experientially relevant. Every other person, religious figure that's ever lived said, to be saved, you better work real hard. And then you hope that you get by by the skin of your teeth. Jesus said, you don't work for your salvation. There's nothing you can do for it. You just accept my free gift of salvation. So it's experientially relevant. Jesus provided a remedy for our human condition, a free gift of salvation, and that is experientially relevant. That's an important thing to remember. Jesus impacted history more than any other human being that has ever lived, and nobody will argue with that. Jesus triumphed over death, and there is so much evidence for that that uh, I actually would have loved to include it, but there's not time tonight. That would just be as amazing as what you heard tonight about some of the different facts and reasons for believing in the Bible. We have the same reasons for believing in his resurrection, historically and many other reasons. So he alone, having conquered death, has the authority to tell me how to conquer death, right? I'm not going to trust my eternity to somebody that couldn't conquer death on their own, and Jesus did. The Bible is logically consistent. Again, Jesus' description of our condition is empirically correct, and only Jesus' remedy is experientially relevant. It's, I can't do anybody else's theory on how you get saved. I can do his. I can accept his free gift. So the summary, naturalism doesn't account for matter, design, or the universe, right? We explained that in the beginning. Design always points to a designer. The Bible alone provides coherent answers to the question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. What are the implications? That there is a God. He is the God of the Bible. He came to earth as a man, and he provided our only means of salvation, a free gift. If you are a believer, right, be confident in God's word and live by it. He says that by living by it, it'll transform your entire being. 
So don't be afraid to found your entire life on it. If you're not a believer, let me explain the four most fundamental principles that the Bible gives us. Number one, and this is what talks about origin. It says that God created you, and then as far as meaning, he has an awesome plan for your life and that he loves you. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 31.3 that he's loved us with each and every one of us individually with an everlasting love. John 3.16 says that he came so that whoever believes will not die but have everlasting life with him. And in John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give you an abundant life here on this planet. So he wants you to, he, he created you, that's your origin. And then as far as meaning, he has an abundant life for you planned on this planet and then he loves you. And then as far as destiny, he wants to give you everlasting life with him. So those are some pretty cool answers to those extremely important questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Right? Sin and selfishness, however, this is law too or principle too, separate us from God. When I act my own way, when I think my own way, it separates me from God. I'm not like him. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sin and fall short of his glory. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death or eternal separation from God. So he loves you and offers an awesome plan for your life and wants to give you an everlasting life with him. But because of our selfishness and our sin, which just means not matching up to his holiness, we are separated from him and cannot live that abundant life, cannot experience that eternal life on our own. Law number three is that Jesus provides our only means of salvation, which he did by dying on the cross for our sins. John 14:6 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the only way to be saved. Next, 4:12 says that salvation is found in no one else, that it's only through him. Law number four, the last one, is that we must personally accept his free gift of salvation. John 1:12 says that to all who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. So when that moment, when you say, I'm going to choose to believe in him, he says, okay, at that very moment, you are my son or my daughter. I make you my child. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says salvation is a free gift that you cannot gain by works. It is only by God's grace, which means God's free gift, basically. Right? And 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, today is the day of salvation. Now, my challenge to you guys to hear, hear tonight is that you heard a lot of evidence for believing Christ's claims, right? And believing that today is the day of salvation, that God has personally called each one of us to that relationship with him and that free gift of salvation, I want to also say that it is not only an emotional experience. A lot of people say, I just had this salvation experience. That's not what we're talking about, not an emotional experience, and not just an intellectual agreement. But it's a decision that you come to saying, I choose to make him my Lord, trusting and putting my faith in what he said and accepting his free gift of salvation. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Are you ready to open the door? What I'm going to do here is I'm going to pray this prayer. And you guys don't raise your hands, don't pray out loud with me, but do close your eyes. And if you're at this place where you're like, I need that, I realize that there's a lot of evidence for believing what Jesus said, and I want to make that commitment to trust him with my eternal salvation. Then go ahead and pray this prayer with me, just in your head. Just repeat it with me. And, uh, and then when we get done, you can put a check in a little box if you want. Anyway, a little, not like a money check. <laughs> you can write on a little paper that's below your seats and put a check in a box that says, I prayed for the first time tonight. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to have to pay. <laughs> thought he said it was free. <laughs> Anyway, okay, why don't you guys close your eyes with me, and we'll pray this. I need you, God, 
Today I place my faith in you, and I accept your free gift of salvation and eternal life with you, which you provided for me by dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for being my Savior and Lord. Amen. It's that simple. Coming to him, realizing that you need him, and praying, just God, I give up. You're in charge. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you've ever prayed that, don't put a check in the little box. If you prayed that for the first time, uh, you're going to have some papers on tables that, that say name, address, whatever, under your chairs maybe in the back, I don't know. If you prayed that for the first time, check it and uh, just pass it up or just leave it where it's at. We'll get it afterwards. Anyway, thank you guys a ton, and we'll talk to you later.